You're listening to Malta Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Legal talk and alhamdulillah, legal talk uh, every fortnight we have our very own uh, senior attorney Ashraf Isup uh, joining us and alhamdulillah, he really adds a value uh, to this uh, segment and also value on uh, the platform of Malta Sahaba the voice of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Let me welcome you, the pious and sagacious Ummah, with uh, our senior attorney, Ashraf Isup, with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, Ashraf, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Alhamdulillah wa shukrillah. All is well with the blessings of Allah. We've seen another Jummah. Beautiful day. Wonderful cold here in Johannesburg. We've had a bit of experiences with uh, loss of water for 58 hours and loss of electricity, especially in our area, for the last seven days. Very, very erratic. But be that as it may, it's all okay. You know, I like your optimism. And, uh, you know, I have uh, many friends, I even have relatives in uh, the Kauteng region. And it seems uh, like you guys uh, have the resolve that you've embraced and you know, you have uh, taken up this challenge uh, with uh, a lot of uh, optimism and positivity. By the way, do you have a fireplace at home, Ashraf? Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm really ble- blessed to have that. Uh, I had uh, recently the good fortune of being able to um, upgrade it. You know, it was the old fireplaces and mm. they are 80% inefficient because it draws all the oxygen out and all the heat up through the chimney. So now we've fitted this new thing called the convection fireplace, which is double-sided glass. So it's, it's, like, it's like a closed unit, you know. It fits into where the old unit was. Highly efficient. You get a lot more heat. It uses because, you know, it controls the air in the, uh, in the unit. You are able to use a lot less uh, firewood. And then I think the quality of your firewood is very important. Again, Alhamdulillah, we had the good fortune of getting some very high quality Namibian hardwood, uh, which is really one of those heavy, uh, you know, woods. And and the important thing is, you know, these kind of woods that we're burning, they, um, they're sustainable because on one level, they are considered alien plants, you know, like your jacaranda, quite surprisingly, is an alien plant. So is your weeping willow. And these things tap a lot of water from the earth. So, um, you know, in a water, in a water scarce country like South Africa, you would find that, uh, the, you know, people are encouraged to, to try and use the firewood from the alien plants, so to speak. But this Namibian hardwood has proven itself to be really sought after. And, uh, you know, it's it's like I say, it's, it's, it's hardwood, it's red in color. It burns for a long time. Alhamdulillah, with the blessings of Allah, we're able to enjoy all of these blessings. Yeah, and Alhamdulillah, I'm glad uh, you keeping yourself warm there, Ashraf. And, you know, we look around and uh, you and I generally, we... Uh, Add uh, to our segment on legal talk with uh, other interesting uh, topics, uh, like the one you sent me about uh, this. Uh, you know, in China, where the the, the Muslims, uh, there was a Muslim uh, community, uh, they were big into martial arts and uh, kung fu and so forth. Uh, talk to us about that, Ashraf. 
Alhamdulillah. So, so there's a clip called, um, you know, this gentleman is, is called Umar of the Orient. Now, he basically says that he describes himself as sharing interesting stories from around the Muslim world. Place is in Canada and, you know, Canada, you would expect that very little will come out of it. But he's really thoroughly researched things and gone into it. And I love the one that he spoke on the Muslim Kung Fu Masters of China. Now, you know, we grew up watching television where the Chinese masters were, were either Bruce Lee or somebody in that. But the old Chinese movies, I mean, you know how ridiculous it was. It was all dubbed. So the guy's mouth was moving while he wasn't uh, the, the speech was coming out while his mouth wasn't moving and vice versa. Be that as it may, you know, we saw incredible feats of Kung Fu. And as you know, Kung Fu originated in the East um, because it was actually a peasant fi fighting uh, art. And the, the art was was because they couldn't they couldn't defend themselves against the Japanese, Japanese samurai you know, who were ferocious warriors. And so the peasants resorted to arming themselves with whatever they could find in the countryside and making that into weapons. So that's how the nunchuck came about, the kendo stick, the sickle, you know, that um, the, the fighting blades and that kind of thing. But be that as it may, so Umar of the Orient says that uh, the Muslims spread from Medina Munawara in a very short time. And um, we know that it was Saad bin Abi Wakas that went to China. And the, he, he, was, he was went he went just on the spur of the moment when the Rasul said, go to China. And I mean, he set off on some accounts, he set off without even returning home. And then he took this beautiful horse and he took it to the marketplace of China. And as you know, the Arabian Horses were bred by the Rasul personally, and they admired this beautiful creature. And he sold it at a fair price and not exploited the price. And the Chinese came to him and said, what are you trying to do? He says, no, look, I'm a Muslim. I, I can only do this. So there you have it. The view that Umar says is that they spread through trade and, um, you know, with, with their fair-mindedness, fair they managed to get. So... He speaks of the first Chinese Muslims being the Hoi Muslims. But then this, this fighting art started, you know, and they used to teach it in the madrasas, man, in the uh, in the courtyard of the madrasas and very, very able. And it was started in Shenzhou. It included the male and the female um, madrasa, um, you know, students and some beautiful pictures of of the Chinese masters that were also Muslim. And then they were able to influence other people with their way of thinking, like not eating pork, for example, not having alcohol, um, being very punctual with the prayer, environmentally aware, kindness to people and animals. And all of these things impacted. We know today that the Chinese had now written side by side with their Chinese, the Arabic script. And um, this particular gentleman also wrote the book of Kung Fu and, and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, 
all that is well and fine. Um, we know that today there are 100,000 Muslims, uh, 100 million Muslims in China. Just mm -hmm. as you can see from from really the efforts of one man sent by the Rasul Sallallahu So in the old days, China was really looked upon, you know, as, uh, in fact, that's where the terrible term coolie comes from. It was a derogatory term used for the, uh, against the, uh, the Chinese. And, you know, I don't know if you recall, but in the movies, they used to always say, are you yellow? You know, yellow. So mm. yellow was a sign of cowardice. Anyway, we're speaking of the greatness of the Muslims there. That's yep. what happened there. They created this wonderful fighting art. It spread, or it has some of the origins in, you know, the Turkish also, the Turkish people also have a form of um, fighting art. Um, so you can just imagine where the influence went to, and then from Shenzhou, they went to Jinan. I had the good fortune of going to Jinan. It's known as the City of Fountains. It still has an amazing history. Two streets are reserved specifically for Muslim businesses. Mostly they, they would be in the food business. So at least you're quite, you're quite um, assured of not getting haram products in your meal. And that exists up to this day. So I hope that's a little bit of a background to that, but I would urge people to research Umar of the Orient who produces the Muslim Kung Fu Masters of China. Yeah, I've, uh, I found that very interesting. And, you know, Molana Rafiq Muhammad had sent me an article and uh, you, you subsequently told me, hey, Shafat, this is the old post, but I'm just going to read uh, a paragraph then. I want you to comment on this because, uh, you know, it's intriguing, but uh, Allah's given you the gift of the gab of, you know, doing a synopsis that is so appealing to the ear also, uh, but very concise indeed. And it says, uh, Gesara's history and timeline, uh, I mean, this was 8 July, say, breaking. Uh, Jeff Kaur Banali, a forensic auditor and a former M15 spy, breaks the news wide open of the biggest money laundering uh, episode that is taking place in uh, this country in the world's recorded history, which is now happening through the top leaders of the South African ANC government, leading bank groups, uh, key corporations and masterminded by, guess who, billionaire Anton Rupert. It is now out in the open and awaiting the outcome from the Supreme Court. This is a huge story involving trillions of rands that have been misappropriated by the Stellenbosch Mafia, white monopoly capital, the ANC leadership, and facilitated by the Rothschilds family. Uh, I mean, we know the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, uh, have been doing it for centuries, uh, you know, all this uh, money laundering and the banking system and the creating wars and the armaments industry. And we also know the Oppenheimers and, uh, uh, you know, the Ruperts are, uh, I mean, forget what Gupta is, but they have already captured this country long, long ago. Uh, what do you make of this, uh, Ashrafa? Is this uh, sensationalism or is it just another damn squib? Uh, in my opinion, it's not worth very much. It's just, just another yeah. damn squib, you know. <laughs> um, and there's a reason for that. You see, it's interesting to say that there is theft of money when the concept of money that the way we understand it is actually fiat money. Fiat money, by its very nature, 
is useless. Now, you and I both know, and we've had this conversation, that the US dollar, which is really the powerful um, means of international exchange, is printed in a printing press somewhere in the world, probably in America. Now, if you print paper and you call it money, and you're saying only some of us can print and not the others, doesn't that strike you as odd where the printed paper bears no resemblance to its actual value? So the face value has no representation in the currents, in, in the hard assets that it's supposed to represent. So you know that by 1973, uh, Nixon had withdrawn, in his words, temporarily, the dollar from having a reserve in gold. And that 1973 seems to have become permanent. To quote the ex-Fed chairman, Alan Greenspan, said, we have the printing press. Now, it's as simple as that, Shafat. You know, we can't, we can't split hairs in saying this is, uh, this is theft and legal, and that is not. Because it's like the emperor with no clothes. You know, only he didn't realize that he didn't have clothes and everyone else could see it. The reverse is true. The controllers of the means of exchange, only they know that it's worthless. So we also know that the dollar became the reserve currency of exchange of the world simply because by then Nixon decided, well, hang on, the Saudis have the oil. We need the oil. The Saudi needs second grade protection, military protection. So, for example, they will never get the latest fighter jets. They'll get two generations old. So we'll go there with the false money in our hand, take the gold away, uh, take the oil away and pay it in this paper. And then the Saudis will come back to shop um, for the very same military goods and pay the thing in paper. And guess where they kept the paper? <laughs> they kept it all in American banks until the American banks collapsed in 2008. So there you have the, you know, the whole cycle of what is legal and illegal tender and what is theft and what is not theft. And so I think, you know, we, we must move from the narrative of saying that there are groups like the Stellenbosch mafia and this mafia and that. The fact of the matter is that capitalism had its birthplace in South Africa. There's a place called the Rand Club here in Johannesburg. And there's a bust of Cecil John Rhodes. And there was a book published recently that when, jo when Cecil John Rhodes came to South Africa, he had the checkbook of the Rothschild Bank in his hand. So you could buy anything. So, you know, if you could buy, if the bank has unlimited lending power and you have in turn unlimited borrowing power, can you imagine what that does?
how much of power that that uh, places in your hands. Interestingly, there is no Arabic for the word bank. It's a very recent phenomenon. So therefore, all these institutions that call themselves Islamic bank and Islamic takaful and Islamic that and that, really they must remove the word Islamic there. It's an antithesis. They can call themselves XYZ bank or Mr. O bank or whatever, but don't put the word Islamic and then, you know, in the same breath, uh, fail and fool the Muslims. So Ashraf, uh, you telling me something, you know, this big scenario of, yeah, they're going to replace the petrodollar. Uh, it's going to be replaced uh, by, you know, uh, the BRICS bank and so forth. So uh, we are looking at another uh, fiat uh, group coming through and, uh, you know, perhaps giving a competition to the other group. So, uh, you know, perhaps Putin and China and all this, uh, uh, the, the BRICS bank, are uh, the head and tails of the same coin, uh, Ashraf. But we saw that, Shafat. We saw that specifically when it came to the dry run of the Europe. This is not something new. This is old as mankind itself. Well, not really. It's only about 400 years old. Mm. But my point is, we've seen it in the dry run of the Euro. We thought, oh my God, the Euro is going to threaten the, mm. the uh, um, dollar. and No, it didn't. It enhanced it. So, what I'm saying to you, you know, we, we must be careful not to get caught up in the narrative. We must try and focus on Deen islam You know, what is the original Deen? Mm. How did it come about? What are its guiding principles? Do we stray from that as we've done? As we've done, and the sad part is, you know, we don't want to move from our position because we are really being tested. You know, we always talk about you know, when, when wine was made haram in Medina, the people broke their kegs and they let it flow, you know, not to be touched by this thing. They didn't want to be harmed by this. They, there was a command and they did it. Well, I mean, we have the same challenge, you know. Riba has to be avoided. We haven't been able to, to take steps in that direction. For, forget physical steps. We don't even use our intellectual ability to understand this thing. You know, it's, it's, it's become the silly conversation that, oh, I put my money in the bank, but I tell the bank, take the interest, I don't want the interest. And the bank, I mean, come on, the bank takes the interest and uses the interest that you've just given away. Yet, there are, people, there are children falling in pit latrines all over the world, or all over the, over the country. We haven't decided, hey, hang on, you know what, I, I think this is bad money, but you, let me save a child's life by building a toilet in a, in a school, Shabbat. You know what I'm saying? We get caught up in the narrative, but it's a false narrative. It, it doesn't, it lacks complete insight and guidance. And then we become picky and particular about minor things. Whereas Allah and the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Surah Baqarah, Allah says, I have declared war on riba. And you cannot get away from that statement. More devastating, it, he says in the Hadith that it will make your blood curl when you, when you hear this. It is worse than committing zina in the haram. I don't want to add to that. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad enough. If I, if I tell you that your hair will stand. Now, if you ask yourself, why is it 
Jesus? You know, is it described in such evocative terms? What is this crime? Well, the crime is that you enrich yourself without work, without labor, through the efforts of somebody else, just because you owe, uh, you may own the means of production, or you may control the fiat currency called money. And that gives you immense power, as we've explained. But Allah, in his mercy, forbid this from the very, very day one of organized society. And who are the organized society? Well, the Egyptians. And how do we know that? Well, we know what they built. And how do we know that? Because of Sayyidina Musa. Allah have uh, peace and blessings on him. Sayyidina Musa was asked to say to Firon, listen here, you're not the God. I have a God, you must believe in him. And then we know Firon turned on them, and the biblical version is that Allah sent all kinds of diseases on them. But on our version, Firon said to Sayyidina Musa, well, now leave. And when he left, Firon had a change of mind. He pursued him, and he drowned. But the remarkable thing is that when Sedna Musa and his companions got over to the other side and um, they demanded that he go and seek or speak to Allah because they were unhappy with some food and some other conditions, when he did it, in 40 days they changed the deen. Now, there's a very clear understanding in the deen of Sayyidina Musa, that riba is haram, prohibited. But they changed it. So they would say now, riba is haram and prohibited between Jew and Jew. But between Jew and non-Jew, it is allowed. So you can see where the, um, the destruction of the original teaching came in. Not only did they decide to worship the golden calf, they also decided to exploit the power of money, which Pharaoh, for better or for worse, decided to let them leave, uh, in his view, everything they could carry. And I mean, there was a lot of gold if they could build a, a golden calf in 40 days and start worshipping it, Shepa. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you talk about uh, uh, car worship, calf wor uh, worship and all that. And, uh, you know, it brings me to the thought of uh, the unholy alliance between, uh, uh, you know, India and Israel. Uh, I mean, they, they have a very close uh, relationship. And uh, what is it that bonds these two nations together? Uh, you know, uh, ideology or is it something to do with the uh, religion, Ashraf? How do you read into it? Well, you just hit it. You said unholy alliance, but both seem to be worshipping the same animal, the calf. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the cow worship, Ashraf. Yeah, in Surah Baqarah, it says the cow. I'm not saying they, 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 the, the Indians are saying they worship the cow. They sing it. I'm not saying it. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I mean, they have, why this common uh, you know, the common enemy. Why is it Islam? Well, I mean, uh, Shafat, it's not strange. Islam was opposed from the very day it came into existence. From the very second that it was 
born, it was supported by three people, a, a, a woman, a child, and a slave. The woman, woman being Sayyidina Khadija, the child being Sayyidina Ali, and, and the slave of the Prophet Outside that, everybody was opposed to it until he was asked to go out and publicly proclaim, he had to do it in secret. He had to do it in people's homes, he had to do it this, he had to do it there. Then Allah said, okay, now you've got to go out. And then, I mean, you could see from the very inception, the deen was opposed. So why is it surprising? It, nothing has changed. Mm. It's the same. It's the same set of circumstances, no? Yeah, and uh, you know, even uh, you look at the whole world, uh, you know, what's happening in Palestine, and you can see how the West uh, won't even say a word or won't even speak out against it. And, uh, you know, the Kashmiri issued, issue, the plebiscite had been taken many, many years ago that hasn't been put, uh, you know, hasn't been uh, pressed forward and so forth. And, uh, you know, it is always the same. How do we come right, Ashraf? How do we come right? See, Shafar, I said to you earlier on, you must go back to Din al-Islam. Let's say tomorrow the Palestinians are given a piece of land that they call Palestine, because most people are now supporting the two-state solution, right? And in India, there are certain demographics that says that the Muslims will become uh, 30% uh, in a few years' time. Now, let's say Kashmir is now given independence. Shafat, what does it really mean today? When South Sudan got independence a few years ago, the young, youngest nation in the world, what do you think happened, Shabbat? Did they all free and without riba and rest? Are they protected from the rest of the world? No. They became like everyone else. A national army, a national anthem, a national debt. So what difference does it make whether you're oppressed at the end of a gun or you're oppressed at the end of a transaction. Which one is worse, Shafa? I mean, we not we mustn't for a moment think that um, we're free because we're not uh, being attacked with weapons daily. There are other challenges. The challenge that you cannot live without debt. And one of the people of the authorized uh, people to receive uh, zakat is the one in debt. So we have to go back to the, to the fact that zakat itself is not established. It's not established because there is no amr. There's no amr, so there's no authority to take the zakat. There's the command of the Quran in the zakat is to take khut. Take the zakat. So, you know, Shabbat, we like we in between and betwixt all these things, right? And then we have, you know, we say this is Islam and that, of course, Islam is wonderful. We, the Muslims, have to appreciate it is the deen that Allah chose for us because we say, Allah said, have I not chosen Islam as your deen? You say yes. And the Nabi as your Nabi, you say yes. So we also have to understand that Allah says, I will not change a people's condition until they change it themselves. Part of the change, Shafat, is simple. It's just to educate ourselves. I think that's lacking. More than what are we going to do and how we get ourselves. We have to, we have to get an education about what's really going on. 
you know, before we start fighting about the chicken and this, you know, the source of, of, of the so-called halal earnings is haram because it's all riba based. So I say we must move from the simplistic understanding that riba is that 10 rand plus 10 cents riba that you're getting in the bank. That's the, you know, is, is really a very simplistic way. In fact, it's reducing the argument against riba because you're actually upholding the bank and you're saying the rest of it is all around. But there's a first banknote is, is, is riba based. Sorry, but I mean, this, this is how I view things. You know, no, it's a, it's a very valid point indeed. And, uh, you know, fight oppression so there's no more oppression. And this is uh, what uh, we as a Muslim should be doing. And all this is oppression. The riba system is a oppression, uh, you know, the, and uh, the, 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 uh, the control of the food and, uh, you know, uh, making us uh, pay uh, exorbitant rates and taxes and, you know, our food prices have been controlled and patrolled and uh, you know I, I don't know uh, this is exactly you're making such a powerful point indeed uh, you know there needs to be a, a heavy heavy thinking uh, uh, going you know, an introspection done by every individual on this planet earth let's move on to our topic uh, this evening Ashraf uh, the merits and demerits of uh, you know uh, dual citizenship uh, your preamble so I'm busy with the matter right now and um, it involves two minor children that are stuck in a foreign country. And they're stuck because they are South African citizens. And they applied for their passport renewals in 2019. Um, the department has actually filed an application and their explanation in that application was quite remarkable. They say that Mr. X in another case was denied his passport and based on certain allegations made. And Mr. Y in this case was not uh, the applicant, but his children are. Uh, Mr. Y must be treated in the same manner. I mean, the, the two cases are glaringly separate. Be that as it may, now the children are stuck in a foreign country and they want to travel and get an education. That government, the Indian government, says no, you cannot take up Indian citizenship until South Africa renounces or deprives you of your citizenship. So, you can imagine if that you had the opportunity of having dual citizenship, which then would have meant that you could have applied for educational opportunities or included or even travel or even enter the Republic. All of these are constitutional rights, all constitutionally based in our constitution and approved and safeguarded. So in the event that you're unable to have a second passport, well, then you are stuck Shafat, in that country. You remember during COVID time, there was a law passed that only citizens and permanent residents could return to their countries of origin. Now, 
that is an example, a very powerful example of the power of citizenship. So when there's a crisis in the world and the world is falling apart, then you can return to your country of origin. And I mean, in many ways, South Africa was a very safe option from the rest of the world, especially Europe. And the South African authorities also passed laws that only South Africans will be allowed in. And therefore, you could see that citizenship evoked a very strong bondage or bond with your country of origin. And I've already made the point that people that didn't have that advantage, well, they were excluded. The second important thing about uh, citizenship is that you can call upon uh, your government, especially in South Africa. Again, it's a constitutional right. It was well motivated and ventilated in the matter of Kaunda. The old case goes to 2000. Uh, it's a constitutional court case. What happened was Kaunda uh, was one of the people, a South African, who was um, recruited as a mercenary. And I think it was General Mike Hall, and they were on their way to go and to commit a coup in some African state. I can't remember if it was those, but I, I don't know who the, the general was. Um, and basically, they had to land due to an emergency in Zimbabwe. And one of the guards noticed there was blood coming out of the engine compartment. They searched and they found all these arms and things and they promptly arrested them and some were arrested in, I think it was Central African Republic, can't remember. Anyway, the, the import of what I'm saying is, despite being arrested and on a you know crime spree or proposed crime spree, they had the right as citizens to call upon our government to intervene and say, listen, Please come and listen to us and, you know, give us some help here. We're entitled to diplomatic visits. We're entitled to advice, not necessarily legal advice, Shafat. Um, and so that is one of the very strong links that a citizen can demand of uh, his government. Now, remember, recently there was a tragedy up in when the war bo broke out in Sudan and people were stuck. So you could only get help if you're a South African citizen because the uh, presidents of other countries sent planes and marines and things to extract their, um, their, uh, their nationals from that country. I think people, very few people will, will forget the scene of the Afghan tarmac when the Americans withdrew. And these poor Afghanis that had uh, thought that they were safe with the Americans were now fearful of the of the new regime and wanting to get out and hanging on by the planes and falling off and terrible sight, you know, uh, because they were not citizens of any other country and they were desperate to get out. Now, had they had, like everyone else, been in possession of other countries' passports, well, those countries would have ensured that... Uh, you were safely, uh, you know, exited. So I think that's the, the pros. Mm. The cons, mm -hmm. well, amazingly, <laughs> the world is divided into first, second and third world countries, right? In the first world country, well, you don't really need visas. 
Um, they are very powerful passports in the world, New Zealand being one of them, visa-free entry into most countries, about 192. It's a very powerful thing. Uh, the downside is, well, if you come from Nigeria or South Africa and you have to apply for a visa, uh, just yesterday, Shafat, unfortunately, uh, seven children were prevented from going for a soccer tournament to Sweden because they were South African passport holders. What had happened, they applied for their visas, Swedish visa, Swedish visitor's visa, and they were turned down once and turned down twice. The excuse given by the Swedes was, oh no, you, you are kids of all single parents, and we need the consent of the absent father. Well, these mothers went and they took the trouble of finding them and got their consent and filed a new application. And the Swede says, oh no, no, sorry, uh, we're still not giving you the visa. Now, uh, uh, we understand that a visa is not a right, it's a privilege that's understood and uh, appreciated, but it can be misused, as in this case. So those kids, seven kids ended up not going. They tried to challenge the um, refusal of visas in the Swedish courts. That didn't work. Uh, we said to them the only hope would be to turn to the European Court of Human Rights and say this was based on discrimination, that you discriminated against because your mother is a single female and your absent father is not there. That means only people who are from a normal married household of two parents would have been successful in their visa applications. So that's the downside of not having uh, dual citizenship because if they had another passport, maybe New Zealand, maybe somewhere else, there wouldn't have been a need for that uh, for that um, visa. You see what I'm saying, Shabbat? Mm, I get your drift there because uh, I'm also recalling a friend of mine who, you know, who went to uh, Canada and, you know, he has his South African passport, uh, citizenship and also Canadian. And I, I remember him telling me, you know, chef, you know what, I like to come back home. But the reason why I'm not coming back home is because, you know, the healthcare there that I get in Canada, you know, it's much better than what I get in South Africa. You know, bringing us to the point that people with the dual or multiple citizenship, Ashraf, they can work in uh, the country's own property and, you know, they can take advantage of social benefits, ability to choose a better health system in the case of my friend. And a person with two citizenships can choose the country with a more advanced healthcare system uh, to get medical help. Uh, you know, a lot of people are thinking like that, Ashraf. Well, national uh, NHI is a reality here, national health insurance. Um, but I don't think that you leave for a single reason, Shabbat. There's a lot of reasons that you would, you would not want to avail yourself anymore of a South African citizenship. I would urge people to take into account now that I think we discussed in a previous show that there was no longer an automatic loss of citizenship. Yes. You had become a citizen of another country without um, filing an application to retain South African citizenship. The Supreme Court of Appeal in the DA matter was very clear there is no such thing as automatic loss. Because again, remember, we're speaking of constitutional rights. The constitutional guarantee guaranteed your citizenship and there can be no arbitrary loss of that. So 
I think the reality is that most of the white South Africans already have dual citizenship by virtue of mm. their ancestry. Uh, very nice uh, to know that recently in England, uh, again, because of the discriminatory nature of the law, which held that mothers whose grandmothers were born in the UK did not qualify for UK citizenship for non-Commonwealth countries. Well, that has been reversed by the British Home Office since June 2022, which now holds are we no longer going to discriminate against mothers because that was actually a privilege only given to fathers. So fathers whose mothers were born in the UK, sorry, not mothers, grandmothers, were entitled to citizenship from non-Commonwealth countries. Obviously, I just said it excluded the females. Now, in 2022, they decided that that is discriminatory in nature and it's going to be reversed. So very helpful to see uh, these developments of citizenship, dual citizenship, and the um, efforts made around the world. You also know, quite amazingly, that the Greek, um, sorry, not the Greek, the Portuguese Golden Visa Scheme netted 1 billion euros, 1 billion euros in net income for them because they were offering citizenship via investment. So, you know, you could buy uh, a property in, in uh, Portugal and then you had a golden visa. So the golden visa says after five years, you'll be given permanent residence. Now, that permanent residence becomes permanent, but the lead up to the five years, you had to spend something like 400,000 pounds or no, 500,000 pounds. And in the five years, the temporary residence visa you had to visit Portugal for 14 days at the time, you and each member of your family. So you can imagine how expensive that was. But there you have it, the power of uh, utilizing your first world status or your third world status, whatever you want to call it, and saying, okay, you're welcome to come here. You'll be given uh, the privileges of citizenship, etc." I think the one small little point that we all seem to miss out in the end is they get your taxes, Shabbat. <laughs> that, that is, is inescapable as death. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, actually, you talk about the taxation, and, uh, you know, the, I think that is one of the disadvantages of uh, having dual citizenship, because uh, uh, taxation, it is uh, in, uh, essential, Ashraf. And uh, you, I mean, you need to think, I mean, the Americans, uh, if they got dual citizenship, uh, they still, no matter where in the world they are, but they still have to pay the American tax, uh, Ashraf. Same as South Africa. Yes. You're not exempt. You're not exempt if you, uh, yeah. unless you make yourself um, yeah. a financial immigrant. And Saudis is looking for you. If you, if you, South African citizen, you haven't financially migrated, you're going you're gonna to have to account for your foreign income. You know, Ashraf, then someone may ask you, you know, with the no service delivery in the country, uh, you know, we be virtually living uh, in like a militia state or maybe, uh, you know, mafia construction and uh, state capture and so forth. And, uh, you know, someone may ask you the question, you know, oh, Ashraf, uh, what are the benefits of living in South Africa if they want to come to this country? How would you answer them, Ashraf? 
Uh, Shafat, I'm an immigration lawyer primarily. You will be surprised the number of advantages South Africa has. First of all, if you came from Europe, you have a 20 to 1 exchange rate, man. You could live off a small yeah. little pension in Germany. Yes. 1,000 euros. You come to South Africa, it is 30,000 rands, man. You tell me how many people earn 30,000 rands. Then they retire in Graf Renet. They have very little needs. They sell one property in London or Europe. They come here. They buy six properties. So tell me, Shavat, where you can afford a private medical aid and eat the best foods in the restaurants and have three maids and just because of the exchange rate being so favorable for you, are you not going to come here where the weather is fine, where our food is fantastic? And in many, many ways, Shafat, let me tell you, our population is very happy. Just look around you. Look at the people that have the least and look how happy they are. Honestly, you must just... They're always laughing and smiling. Today was a bitterly cold day. And there was some construction going on next door. Despite all that, the workers were laughing and talking. Shabbat, we have to sometimes look at this hadith very, very seriously. Look for me amongst the poor because I've come on account of the poor. Very few people can have that kind of contentment with very little, Shabbat. Really seriously. South Africa has got its problems, yes, we don't say. But look at the bright side. Look at the wonders of this country. Look at how beautiful. Do you, do you know that Cape Town was voted one of the best cities in the world? Uh, Cape, Yeah, Cape Town. Yeah. I mean, I mean this is a serious vote. And actually, number number one in Africa. Must be. I mean, but yeah. I, read, I read yesterday it was in the world. One of the, in the, best world. In the world. Okay, yeah. brilliant. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, even so, Shabbat, look, you, I don't know where you buy your fruit and vegetable. Sometimes I go to the central market here. I'm astonished at the food production, the freshness, the, the quality, the size. And, and all of it, or most of it is natural, you know. It's not hormonized and, you know, given all these fertilizers and yeah. things. And even if you want it totally organic, you can get it. You can get it from everything. So we have a lot to be thankful for. Ask ourselves why Allah put us here in the sudden tip. Let's wonder about that. Let's see. You see that story of this pastor from Natal going on Hajj. I mean, he says he's converted 100,000 people of his uh, community. That's serious, man. There's a serious change there. There are members of the Zulu uh, uh, royal household that are interested in the deen. There are lots and lots of princes and things in other uh, uh, little chiefdoms and kingdoms in South Africa that are Muslim. Yeah, you got, you know, you you got me thinking, Yashraf, and you know, you talk about South Africa, and we know it's the world's uh, biggest gold producer, platinum. Uh, you know, it has uh, what a uh, name it. It has it all. It gas now. We're finding uh, all these things, and it also produces nearly forty percent of the world's chrome. And all these things. And uh, Durban is the largest port in Africa and the largest in the world. And, South, you know, maybe Richard's Bay is coming and uh, 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 getting to it. So, you know, you talk about the positivities of uh, South Africa. And the point you made is that such a, a powerful point that only those from overseas that can come here 
virtually gets this country for a song for uh, next to nothing. And then you talk about the peer, uh, poor people in this country. And I've noticed that if you talk to them properly, uh, you know, basic meal with a loaf of bread and maybe some mass, they're happy, they got the meals and so forth. Or maybe they're having a function and, you know, they have uh, one one big cow slaughtered and uh, two, three hundred, they'll boil the meat and eat it. And it's like in, in a very happy way. These are people that have a lot of sabr and it is uh, in our hands to go and give them the message, uh, uh, Ashraf. And I think uh, they will, uh, you know, will embrace and celebrate it uh, wholeheartedly. What's your thoughts? Of course, totally agree, Chapa. Totally. And, and uh, we must understand the power of zakat. The one category in the Surah Tawbah is those whose hearts are inclined to the deen. So let's let's correct the faraid of zakat and move forward and bring justice and harmony to this country. It is doable because we can't do it. Allah does it. That's why we know it's doable. Ask the millions that just went to Hajj now and they came back and they marveled at two million people. Where did it start? One man. Rasul it started if you can't get your mind around that when you look left you look right in the haram and you think wow one man and that's why you and I are here I mean that shows you what is how how Allah is uh, was there to help no, absolutely. And uh, perhaps a question, you know, I, I think it's an important uh, question. How long can, uh, you know, an, an individual live in South Africa without a citizenship? If you're permanent residence, you're permanent. There's no need for citizenship. Permanent residence is exactly that. Unless you leave the country once in every three years and you didn't enter again back. So in the 36 months, if you didn't enter once, your permanent residence will lapse. So a lot of people, especially from Europe, are here on permanent residence permits and not citizenship. But, you know, the, in, in the legal understanding of permanent residence, it is everything a citizen has but the right to vote. So it's quite powerful. Well, we got it here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Ashraf, after entering uh, South Africa on a family relative visa, you must obtain a temporary resident uh, permit at the uh, Department of Home Affairs in South Africa to show your right to stay here longer than three months or 90 days. A family relative visa is uh, valid for 24 months or two years. What's that all about? Well, if you're a relative, you must apply for the relative's visa in terms of Section 18 of the Immigration Act, and they can give you between a period of two to five years and uh, thereafter, on a, on a relative's visa for five years, you can apply for permanent residence. So even on the temporary residence visa, you allowed two kinds of um, relative's visa, Section 18 or Section 11.6, which allows you to even work and operate a business and without any of the, of the mandatory requirements in terms of the Immigration Act. It's a very, very powerful piece of legislation that supports people that are married to South African spouses and have families here. So they enable the uh, harmonizing of family relationships. Remember, that is a very, very important constitutional imperative. In fact, in the Dawood decision of 2000, it was made clear that the families cannot be unlawfully separated due to some or other existence of 
uh, lack of visa in terms of the Immigration Act, etc. So they hold the family values very, very high and dear. In fact, it was an aspect of your dignity. So marriage is not directly recognized or protected in the Constitution, but an aspect of dignity, Shafat. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, you marry... Uh, your wife is from overseas or maybe from, uh, you know, England or from Wales or Scotland. And, uh, you know, she has a British passport and you're a South African. Um, if she goes uh, with her uh, Scottish or British passport, uh, you know, uh, to Scotland, they will accept her, it on, on, on her uh, passport. Uh, what happens to the husband? Uh, can he uh, benefit from his uh, wife's uh, uh, citizenship there? Yeah, of course, but it requires residence, you know, that's, that's one of the basic requirements. They require you to be resident in those, in those jurisdictions. Eh? Mm. So it's not like you just marry a foreigner and then you can sit here and automatically get your rights. No, it requires you to perfect those rights by taking up citizenship there. Um, uh, sorry, residence, but they're not that easy. You know, I was, uh, I was doing a matter once, it's quite surprising, man. The gentleman was from England. And his wife had happened to be a Zulu princess. And he was Muslim. So, and um, he went and in Dubai, they offloaded the mother and children saying that, oh, no, no, uh, in terms of the British Act, uh, you know, you're going to be overcrowding and you're you know, nonsense. They, they, mm. they really oppress them uh, trying to get into England. So, you know, you'll, you'll find certain kinds of hardships and certain kinds of challenges. Um, not every country is willing and able to just let you in. There seems to be, even our own minister here was saying that in one press report that, you know, there's a lot of spousal visas that he's looking at, but there's spousal visas with the right to work. And he, he then added, oh, but you know, South Africa has got very high unemployment. So basically, that tells you the kind of challenges you're going to be facing. But where there's a challenge, there's a law to protect you, and where there's a law, you must take full advantage of it. Well, uh, finally, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, we're talking about passports and dual citizenship, uh, but uh, South Africa, you know, with uh, the passport wife syndrome, perhaps uh, had become uh, the laughingstock of the world, uh, Ashraf. How so, Shafat? I mean, uh, guys came here, married, uh, fictitious marriages, and they came and uh, they got work here and they got uh, residency here, but all by this uh, having uh, these uh, marriage with the 500 and uh, tip off here and tip off there and uh, buying uh, officials off at home affairs, Ashraf. It happens in every corner of the world. Shabbat, there's a movie called Green Card. It's happening in America. Wow. wow. It, it happens in every, in, in England, there's a thing called sure. border agency. You see the guy going for an interview and he's going there with his wife and they ask certain questions and they suddenly figure, oh, no, no, this is a marriage of convenience. Of course, you can't support a marriage of convenience. And you tell the people, don't, you know, don't do this. And a lot of people have done it. Yes, they have. And it is still being done, you know. Uh, but Home Affairs has the power to investigate and call in the wife. And often, unfortunately for the fellows that did it that way, they will get to the wife before the husband does and say, hey, you married this wonderful man in Limpopo on this day. It was very nice. Where you went for your honeymoon? Mm. Uh, what does he like to eat? Where did you people sleep last night? How did you meet? 
What is his auntie's name? What sports does he like? And both, both parties have to answer that. And the woman says, oh, I don't know who's this Mr. Who. I haven't married him. He looks like he's got this thing back to Well, then they cancel everything. And now the, the system is so sophisticated. Wherever you go, they will know. A lot of people also made the mistake of getting false birth records here. And unfortunately, they have now come to meet the end because the government realizes through its vast security international network, which is all really one system, that you are already a citizen of another country. When you came here, your fingerprints were already captured in India. So how is it that you were born there, but you did a late birth registration? So the whole thing is, is coming to an end, Shafar. Okay, so uh, the implosion is on, Ashraf. Well, Home Affairs seem to be doing its work, you know, whether we agree with it or not. Well, I tell you, I agreed with you on uh, everything that you said. Uh, this, and uh, thank you for informing me about that. Uh, yeah, every way it's happening. I thought, you know, we were the one uh, conduit for this whole thing. But uh, Jazakallah Khair, your parting words uh, this evening, Ashraf? As always, Shafat, do the Yasin, remember everyone in the Dua. Also, be, do two rakats of shukar, because we have a lot. You know, I think that's that's all I can say today. Jazakallah Khair, and enjoy your fireplace uh, this uh, evening. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Jazakallah. Jazakallah, my brother. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.